Hello, and welcome back to Scream Addicts. Is something I thought I'd never say again. Call it a sequel, call it a second season, call it a reboot, call it whatever the hell you want. But just know that we are back, alive and kicking once more. And we're hoping to stay that way. We have a limited batch of episodes that we're putting out this time around, but beyond that, our future is a bit of a mystery. And that's where you come in. Scream Addicts was, is, and will always be a free podcast, but the nature of creating and maintaining this show is such that we would really appreciate your support. If you would head over to MailroomStudios.com and click our Patreon account and maybe consider throwing a buck or two at us, it'd mean the world to us, along with our continued survival. It takes less than a minute to do so, and it'd help ensure that this show stays out of the grave and keeps shambling on for episodes and episodes to come. Again, that's MailroomStudios.com. You can find and donate to the Mailroom Studios Patreon link right there on the main page. And with all that said, on with the show. When King John drove out the Mamelukes and came to our village... He found dreadful things. People bowed down to Satan and said their masses to him. Well, I still don't see what it has to do with you. Those who escaped, the wicked ones, their legend haunts the village where I was born. <coughs> oh, it's all right. It's just that cats don't seem to like me. You can fool everybody. But Landy, dearie me, you can't fool a cat. They seem to know who's not right, if you know what I mean. You're saying the cats. Torment me. I wake in the night, and the dread of their feet whispers in my brain. I have no peace. Oh, they are in me. How much do you believe about the cat people? <laughs> It's really nothing more than the shapeshifter concept. It's it's really sort of like uh, the Wolfman light. And when I say light, I don't mean it isn't scary. In fact, for me, it's scarier. But I believe that the Wolfman was so popular then that they wanted to come up with, much cheaper at RKO, a version of the shapeshifter story. But instead of a wolf, they used a cat and created their own mythology. And uh, a lot of people thought, my God, we're not seeing the monster in the same way we did in the... The Wolfman, and yet this film, which was done very low budget, went on to make a whole lot of money and to become a classic. But what I would say is that it's creepy. It's uh, got its own version of the shape-shifting mythology, and my God, is it beautifully filmed. It's film noir horror. Hello, and welcome back to Scream Addicts. I'm Jinx, your host, and that was Joe R. Lansdale talking about Val Luton's 1942 production of Jacques Teneur's Cat People. Mr. Lansdale is an award-winning author with over 40 novels, numerous short stories, and several comic books to his credit. His works include the Happen Leonard book series, Cold in July, Bubba Hotep, and Incident on and Off a Mountain Road, which have all been adapted for the screen. Mr. Lansdale, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me, man. So, we had previously discussed The Haunting on an earlier episode, and now we're about to discuss one of Val Loon's mm-hmm. most popular productions. Out of any horror movie you might have chosen to discuss for your second appearance on this podcast, why go with Cat People? I think for me, the answers for that are pretty, well, I, I, I said they're almost pretty easy. I almost did. I walked with the zombie. Uh, they are both of about that same era, and they both have the same kind of 
horror. So that, it was a flip of a coin between those two. But I think it's because not only did I see them when I was young, and there's a certain nostalgic element, but when you re-see them, they really are creepy in the best sense of the word. They're sort of like controlled nightmares, you know, that they're, they're just uh, what's going on beyond the veil that you don't see is scarier than what you are looking at. And sometimes you're looking at things that represent things that go into the back of your subconscious. And then later you go, Oh yeah. (laughs) So for me, it wasn't that hard. I mean, you know, after Robert Wise's the haunting, I think this is somewhat in the same vein. I I, I really love the photography and the, and the mood of it. So it wasn't that hard to pick. And, And just to add a little note here is that the, the second that the uh, Curse of the Cat people, Robert Wise, I think that was his first film. And, of course, he went on to do The ha- Haunting. And I think that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it's funny. I, uh, I'm recently revisiting, like, uh, all of Val Luton's films. I have that great box set that Warner Brothers put out some time ago. And, yeah, uh, terrific. Yeah, I hadn't seen Cat People or Curse of the Cat People in some time. And uh, I honestly, I, I feel ashamed being a horror fan for not knowing this. I didn't realize until I rewatched Curse of the Cat People that it was uh, Robert Wise's directorial debut. I mean, he he sort of directed yeah. half of the film. Apparently, the first director was at a... Oh, gosh, I do yeah. not have his name handy. But he, uh, he only I don't remember either, but he, he he was replaced, yeah. Yeah, but it is uh, God. I, I I adore Curse of the Cat People too. Uh, I this might be yeah. uh, a bit of a controversial thing to say. I, I I'm curious to see what people. I'm curious to see what you will say or uh, any of our listeners. But uh, watching them both back to back, as much as I love Cat People, and I do, I found myself actually loving Curse a bit more this time than uh, than the first film. I love Curse too. I don't know that I love it more. I love it different. Because uh, to me, they're different kinds of films, even though they're, you know, they're supposedly it's a sequel, but it's got a different tonality about it. I think it's a more, I don't know if the word would be totally accurate, but more pleasant uh, sort of viewpoint. And uh, I like, like it a lot, but uh, I think because the other one is first and because it establishes a certain mythology, um, I think it's still my favorite, but I tell you what, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, uh, uh, argue with anybody too severely about it. Cause it's also a very good film. And if I was making a list of my top 50 horror films, Curse of the Cat People would also be there. Excellent. And you know, I, I do love the original Cat People too. I don't mean to knock it in any way. It is a great movie and it, it was funny watching Cat People and Curse. But, you know, and- one thing I, I just want to add this to it just before you get, it's when you get older, one of the things that you start to find, or at least I have, maybe I'm just the only old guy that does this. It's harder to do those definitive lists that you make or the sort of oh, thing yes. where you say, <laughs> I like this one better because sometimes it's like comparing, uh, things that are not comparable. Even though Curse of the Cat People ha- is reminiscent to some degree in the first one, it's a very different film, and it, it gives a very different kind of pleasure. So I, it, to me, it makes it very difficult. Yeah, I agree, and I found that recently, too. I uh, I can't imagine that I could make a list of my favorite horror movies this year, and it would look even remotely similar to one that I might have made last year or the year before or one a decade ago, and not just, not just for <laughs> exactly. the fact of you know, uh, the, the, the new movies that might've come out since, but just, you know, I, I think our sensibilities change too, you know, a movie from the seventies or eighties or nineties that I might've loved it as a kid, you know, I don't know that I would feel the same way about now that I'm in my mid thirties, you know? Um, yeah, no, it, it, it have an effect on it, but you know, my list is really weird 
my list, uh, you know, my favorite horror film is The Haunting, and, and I also I think Jaws is a horror film. And uh, I think, you know, Cat People obviously is a horror film, but I love the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the original Night of the Living Dead especially. And uh, I also like weird things like Basket Case and stuff like that. <laughs> so, you know, you can you don't have to have just one attitude about something to enjoy, uh, you know, film or, or books for that matter, stories. And I think you're right, too. One thing that I found recently trying to make definitive lists, you know, or even attempting, I don't know that I'm even attempting it anymore. At the end of the year, I uh, I try and do my own personal top ten of films that I've seen. And yet, you know, I I don't know if there's any snobbery involved with this. Uh, it, it would be myself being a snob <laughs> with myself in this case. But, uh, you know, I, I find it hard at the end of the year to harder than I did anyway, to sort of draw a line be- between what my favorite movies of the year were and uh, what what I would consider to be the best movies, because to me, they're not always the same thing. Uh, and I know No, that's a they're definitely thing not. Say, they're but... definitely not. No, it's not strange at all. It's absolutely correct. Sometimes there, there are, um, well, I use just an example. You know, there's a Western that John Wayne made called Big Jake that's not a great Western, but it is highly rewatchable. Uh, you know, I haven't seen it in years, but used to, I would watch it. Every time it came on, I'd end up watching it. I thought, you know, this is this is okay, but it's no masterpiece, but I like it. It's not real Bravo, and it's not, but there was something about it that made it rewatchable. But uh, there were other films that were far better, and, and that may not be the best example, but it's, it's one example. And there are things like uh, Roadhouse, which I, I love that <laughs> film, and it's, it's just got all kinds of things about it that are just you know, just over the top and silly, but it's also got all kinds of wonderful moments. And it's got, it's got things that I guess that uh, touch uh, on spots that I'm interested in, you know, with the kind of intellectual tough guy hero, which is always goes, you know, back to the Hemingway and uh, Chandler and Hammett sort of heroes. So I, I, I do get that because sometimes there are certain things that push your buzzers. It doesn't mean you don't like the other film either, but it means that some films, that are great, like Curse of the uh, Spider-Woman is a film I absolutely adored, but I would never see it again. But I think it's a great film. I felt the same way about the book. I'd never reread it, but it's a great novel. Uh, you know, you can appreciate some things, but not always love them. I agree. I agree. I mean, you know, it's. I, I think I can personally recognize that, say, um, uh, yeah, Citizen Kane is a better film than The Crow, but, you know, if... Uh, if I had a gun to my head and you told me to only choose one to watch for the rest of my life, you know, I'm probably leaning toward the uh, a, a great gothic, you know, action revenge pick, you know, as opposed to uh, something that talks deeply right. about the human well, my, condition. My buddy, <laughs> my buddy David, David Scow wrote The Crow, oh, so I'm predisposed to like it a little bit. But it's not my favorite movie by any means. But if you told me which uh, Orson Welles is the best film he ever made, I would say Touch of Evil. And I think it's because it has a much more storytelling, uh, I, I, I guess it's more genre in a good way. The engine that drives it is, uh, you know, it really purrs. It really is nice. And that beautiful camera work, just like Citizen Kane. When I see Citizen Kane, what I see is the beginning of how modern film is interpreted from that point on. Because he changed the way things look, the way you look, use the camera, the way you told the story with the camera, um, and he really turned that into art. But it's, it's for me, Citizen Kane, which I, I like, it's a cold piece of art. And uh, Touch of Evil has more heat to it, and that's why it's you know a favorite of mine. Yeah, it is. I, 
I love his work. I do. I, I still think, you know, it's funny, uh, in preparation for this uh, talk, I was, uh, I watched about half of the, uh, oh, the great Martin Scorsese produced documentary on Val Luton. I think it's Man in the Shadows or Man of the Shadows. And, uh, you know, they'd mentioned, yeah. obviously, that Citizen Kane was uh, an RKO picture. And, of course, Val Luton would work with RKO, uh, Cat People as an RKO film. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, they, they mentioned, oh. even though he had released this uh you know, masterpiece in Citizen Kane, you know, it kind of underperformed. And when it came to his next movie, The Magnificent Ambersons, they took it away from him and hacked it to pieces. And I still think that that's one of uh, cinema's great sort of holy grails is finding his director's cut of The Magnificent Ambersons because, I mean, you know, not only is it his follow-up to Citizen Kane, but I think what remains of The Magnificent Ambersons is still pretty damn great. I've never seen that one at all. I've never seen any of it. It's one of those that uh, has eluded me for whatever reason, uh, and uh, maybe it's because I know it was cut up, you know. Um, but, you know, a lot of times Wells was his own worst enemy. We, everybody <laughs> that loves Wells, and I'm one of them, we always give him a lot of slack. But he had a tendency to just lose interest in things and to go off and do other stuff when he should have been, you know, finishing that up. I think the idea of finishing something was tough for Wells. I think that he uh, always wanted to go back and noodle with it a little bit more. I mean, he worked on that Don Quixote film forever. And, and of course, some of the, his problem was finance, but I also believe a lot of his problem was Orson Welles, you know, and uh, right when that one was going to be edited, he sort of just disappeared. You know, he, he went to do something else. And, uh, you know, he, I think he kind of knew that he was supposed to be done. And I think that's only one example of like when Wells would make choices that seemed to be uh, counterproductive, you know, but um, maybe that didn't have a lot to do with the cat people, but nonetheless. <laughs> no, hey, that's this uh, that's this podcast in a nutshell. I think we tend to digress quite a bit. You know, it's just a conversation. So, yeah. But, you know, it is funny talking about Wells, uh, you know, with his RKO days. One imagines that he might have, uh, you know, crossed paths with Luton. And, you know, I, I wonder what a collaboration in between them might. Well, actually, never mind. I don't. I, I can't imagine those two would have been able to collaborate because, uh, in, again, in doing a little bit of research for this talk, it, it was noted, apparently, that uh, Luton was sort of said to pre-direct the pictures that he produced. You know, uh, Cat People, obviously, he produced. You know, it was his first big movie. Uh, and it was even based on his own uh, short story, The Begita, which apparently had appeared in Weird Tales. Yeah. And, you know, I when you see a Val Luton movie, uh, no matter who the director is, there seems to be a Val Luton stamp on them stylistically. And yeah, I think that's true. I I, I do believe that. I, I think that like when you used to watch Alfred Hitchcock presents, even though Alfred Hitchcock didn't show up half the time, just to even be on the set or anything, <laughs> there was an Alfred Hitchcock Hitchcock attitude about that entire series that sort of over, you know, over, uh, shadowed everything that was done. And I believe Val Luton was even more so because he did show up, you know, he was a guy that, uh, like you said, pre-directed, but I don't think you can take anything away from Jacques Trenot. I mean, he had a vision that he was able to put there. Um, pre-production only goes so far. And, uh, even though Luton did, uh, so a lot of work that, uh, you don't think of, producers doing today or they you hope to hell they're not doing it because they don't have his <laughs> talent a lot of the time but when you um, have uh jacques Renaud translating that he still has to have that vision himself uh he has to be able to look at what uh 
Luton wants and deliver. Luton didn't have the budgets that, say, Universal had. And as I remember, and you can correct me on this if I'm wrong because it's been a long time, but as as I remember, Universal had things like the Wolfman and Frankenstein and Dracula and Mummy and so on. And uh, so they went, RKO said, well, you know what? Maybe we ought to have our own horror series, and here's Val Luton. We'll just give it to him. So this was they knew he was talented, but it was just kind of his first real, you know, stuff. And when they handed it to him, they said, Here's a title, cat people, do it for, I don't know, hundred thousand dollars, hundred and thirty thousand dollars, whatever it was. I'm trying to remember the budget, but I know it was small. Uh it would be of course larger today, but it would still be a small budget. And they said, Take this name, give us a horror film. And, you know, when he made that film and when they got it made, when uh, he and, and Turner finished it, they looked at it and said, oh, hell, there's no monster. You don't see the monster. Where's the monster? And so they went ahead and released it because they didn't really have much choice. And then the damn thing made all kinds of money for them. <laughs> and that really started Luton's career, you know. Yeah, absolutely, and he, and thank goodness he had a lengthy career, and I, I, I agree with you, too, I mean, obviously, you know, Cat People is what it is in large part due to Jacques Turner, and, um, you know, but it is neat to see the collection of his films, you know, his entire filmography, and the fact that, it, you know, they do feel all of a piece in a way, and I, you know, again, when they released the box set, it, it was a Val Luton box set, which was kind of interesting, and it talks about what kind of... Yeah. respect he commands even today for the uh for the work that he did absolutely yeah, well there's there's no doubt that his shadow is over everything but i'm just saying it's so common in film to see the director get all of the credit for things that are not entirely directorial first of all you have to have a script and in this case it's a slim script and and i think i think it might be one of those cases where it really is that this would if without the cinematography, this film would not have been what it was because it took a simple story, almost a silly story, if you really just think about it, <laughs> and it added a tremendous level of uh, texture to it um, by, um, you know, the shadows and the cat imagery. And, and there was something, there was cool stuff, too. I always thought it was cool that Simone Simone looked like a cat and she walked like a cat, and she had this kind of, I don't know if it was a bow or something in her hair, and it looked like cat ears, but they were askew. <laughs> they kind of went over to one side, which kind of gave you this feeling like, okay, that cat's funny. There's something <laughs> wrong with that cat. And because you remember, you remember in the restaurant where the lady is looking at her, and, she, and they even comment that that lady looks like a cat, and she, one of the characters that it's at the at the table and and this this woman is wearing a bow in her head and, and it's, it looks exactly like cat ears and her you know makeup and her face is kind of sea line in a way a you know beautiful woman but very cat like and she co- comes over and calls most of the character sister in the, uh, a Serbian language. And everything in there, it just the, the way that that woman looked, the way Simone Simone looked, and when she's in her apartment, there's images of cats. There's, there's a painting of cats on the wall that look kind of sinister when you really look at them. There's all manner of cat imagery. There's that strange uh, statue with the uh, King John of, of the Serbian King John in the story holding his sword up with a dead cat on the end of it. Uh, 
You know, so everywhere you look, it's like if you were writing a, a short story and you were writing the atmospheric details in, but you were sketching them in quickly and expertly. And that's what that does, because this is a case where the script is a simple script, but it's given power by the choice of the actors, the way it looks, more the way it looks than anything, and not just the, the art design and all that, but the, but the lighting. It's a master of lighting. They, uh, I, I forget who did the, uh, the lighting for them, but he, he was fantastic. There's a scene where they're sitting in the dark, and the guy lights the match for the cigarette, and it draws you to him. And then she comes over and turns on the lamp, and it draws you to her, and then you got both of them. It's, um, it's cleverly constructed. It's a beautiful piece of work. If you turned off the sound on that and watched it, you would still understand the bulk of that story. It's that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there is something to be said for that, too. The fact that it is such a spare yeah. picture. I mean, I think it's 72 minutes long, and yet there isn't there it's isn't short. an ounce of fat on it. There isn't a wasted moment. It's exactly as long as it needs to be. And I think a lot of movies today could probably take a lesson from that kind of storytelling. I do, too. I, I wish, even when I was a kid, you know, before you had all the videos and stuff, when I was a kid, I, I wished for videos before there were videos where I could just watch a movie anytime I wanted. But what it's what that has done is it's taken away the special aspect of it. If you knew a movie was coming to town, like, um, say, Taxi Driver, you were waiting on that film because there was it wasn't competing with a, a zillion on TV, and it wasn't... Uh, something that you were going to wait till it became uh, available on DVD because there were none or video because there were none. And if you did see it on TV, it was cut up with commercials. So it was an event. And I, and these little secondary movies, I call them secondary because they were inexpensive, not necessarily due to quality, like the cat people, uh, you know, and this is before taxi driver, obviously, but, but it would be these, these uh, two films, I, I would go on a Saturday morning, I'd go in and watch cartoons, I would watch a serial, uh, from, and I thought they were new, I didn't realize that, uh, you know, that these serials I, were wa- I was watching were from the 40s or something, because I was a kid, you know, and I would go in and see the Purple Monster Strikes, uh, so I'm watching these sort of things, and then comes the kids' film, and then you had the double feature, and the kind, like Cat People, which was short, was always the double feature and frequently it would be in black and white while, while the major film would very likely be in color and you could come in and watch both of those then you could sit and watch both of them again and i remember spending entire saturdays that way after lunch when the when, when the kids show open and for 25 cents and 35 when i turned 13 i could come in and spend an entire day at the movies and frequently the b movie the black and white movie would be the one i would stay for through the other one to see it because sometimes they were the perfect little film and they would stay with you and cat people's that kind of film. Although that's not how I actually saw it. When I saw it, it was on television, but it has that nature that, that you're talking about of this, this simple, straightforward little film that, you know, it stays with you. That when, like when it was remade, uh, by Paul Schrader, uh, I mean, bless him, but I, I just hated that film. I thought it was overdone. I thought it was loud. And I like, I, you know, I don't mind violence and horror. I don't mind gore and horror. I'm not someone who just watching, you know, the old old ones because they're quiet. I'm watching the old ones that I like and the new ones that I like. But I just thought that it missed the entire point of what made the original one so unsettling. And the fact is, is that the 
sexual tension in it is interesting, too, because even when I was a kid, I wasn't exactly sure what was going on there, but I, I knew something was happening uh, with with, uh, with this lady and him, and that, that, you know, it wasn't working out the way, the way that he wanted it to work out. And because if she had any kind of sexual contact or, or felt great, intense jealousy, then uh, the implication was is that that was her transformative trigger, that that's what set her off and made her become this cat person, you know, this cat woman. And uh, I like the way they played that. I, and some will tell you that you never really know. There's all kinds of things that you can look at from both directions. But I don't agree with that. I think it's very subtle, but I think it's very obvious that she is indeed uh, able under those circumstances to transform into a cat because there's the evidence seems to be there for me, like the, the footsteps and then the, uh, uh, the, the cat uh, uh, shadows and all that stuff. And you could say it's the little cat and it's the shadows and the woman in the pool thinks it's the big cat because everything is intensified in her view. So I guess you can play it more in both directions, but I think that the strongest evidence that's there is that she is indeed someone who can transform into a cat. Oh yeah, absolutely. I I agree. I you know, I think the movie is brilliant in the way that it sort of plays with that suggestion. You know, we're meant yeah. to wonder for the length of the movie, I think, if the story is one about mental illness or the supernatural. But yeah, I I think by the time right. we get to the end of the film, that question is sort of answered for us definitively. You know, there is that question, I mean, did she let the uh the panther out of the cage? Is she some sort somehow wielding right. it, it as uh you know, her own kind of personal Avenger, you know, uh, is it on the loose instead of her? And honestly, I, I thought that that was the case. I thought that the movie would wind up on the side that, you know, it was, and I mean, of course the movie, I mean, the subtext is, I mean, there, there is a mental issue there certainly. And they're dealing with that, you know, with this, uh, uh, ultimately kind of far-fetched right. story. But by the time we get to the end of the movie, when she, uh, attacks Judd. I mean, they, they explicitly show a, uh, a cat attacking him, you know, very briefly, you know, it's, uh, yeah. but yeah. yeah. And there's also a time when she's doing things and the cat's locked up and, uh, there you, if you really watch, you realize, okay, it can't be the Panther because he's in the cage right now. And, and, uh, there, there are moments when, uh, you know, you, you see a shadow that just looks exactly like a cat. So I, I, I think they were trying to hedge their bets a little, but I, I felt like that eventually came down on the side of, yes, uh, she was transformed, could transform into a, a cat creature. And I got to say, like, after the last few years of, uh, you know, horror movies, even horror movies that I love, uh, like, say, um, uh, Hereditary, which just came out, and I, I, I do adore that movie, or even from a few years ago, The Babadook, you know, there is... Uh, you know, it seems by the time the credits roll that uh, they do try and have it a little bit both ways. But, you know, it, it seems like the movie's leaning toward the possibility that the supernatural isn't really in effect in either one of those stories. But in in the case of Cat, you don't think it's in effect and you don't think it's in effect and hereditary. I don't. I and maybe that's. I've seen the movie once, and if if I have to be honest, about halfway through that movie, that that film messed with me in a way that movies rarely do. And I it's an I, interesting I, film. Yeah, I, I adored it for that. But you know, when I walked out, it seemed to me like now uh, the friend that I caught it with is entirely on the other side of the fence. I walked out thinking that it was you know even right down there to the title, you know, that it was uh, surely just about a you know the shared madness, you know, given from one generation to the next and that's sort of uh 
what was affecting everyone in the film. I, I don't know that we can tr- – me personally, I don't know that we can trust anything that yeah. we saw in the last 10 to 15 minutes as being entirely yeah, that's it, real. That's, it, that's, that's, that's interesting. I, I kind of, I'm kind of with your friend on that one. I think it was the real deal. But that's interesting. I hadn't really even considered it that way. I actually loved that film up until the end. Really? And I thought that when they got to the, the treehouse up there, I, it, it sort of fell apart for me. I felt like that it – if it had kept that subtle all the way through, it would have been more interesting. I kind of felt like that it that that, that the ending didn't entirely work for me. I mean, he had in, inherited this title and this position and, the, of course, these uh, supernatural abilities. But I wasn't entirely sure that that played for me. But, you know, overall, I, I liked the film a lot. And, uh, you know, I've I've said good things about it, and uh, but but I, I did feel that the ending bothered me a little. And it was very similar to the 1970s with Rosemary's Baby, and uh, yes, uh, there was another one about a concert pianist. I think Alan uh, Alda starred in the film, maybe, and it was written by a guy. Last name was I think his name was Stuart Mustard or something. Stuart Mustard, and I can't even think of what the name of the uh, the book or film is right now. Oh, but but anyway, up. it reminded me of those seventies films. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And you know, with Hereditary, you know that I think it's because the ending is so uh, overblown in a way that the rest of the movie isn't. That to me sort of cemented it, again in my mind. Um, and I do appreciate that the movie is ambiguous enough that you can walk out and appreciate it, and you can yeah. have a conversation as to what it means. You know, it it allows audiences to make up their own mind, and I, I do adore that about. Yeah, it, I, I, I have to say, I hadn't even thought of I hadn't even thought of it that way, and that's an interesting way of looking at it. I I really hadn't even looked. At, I, I took it literally. You know that that's interesting though. I hadn't thought about that. I I need to see it again. <laughs> and it, you know, but it was kind of refreshing watching Cat People again and getting to you know seeing a movie that's very similar in that way. It sort of rides that line. But once you get to the ending, there is sort of a definitive answer. But can I ask? Do you think that was the you know, given the approach to the story all the way up until that finale, do you think that was the most uh-huh. effective way to handle that resolution of the story? Or do you think it might have been even stronger if it had stayed fully ambiguous all the way through the credits? Well, it's hard to say what it might have been like that because it's so damn good for what it is. And uh, I, 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 you know, I like I like what they did with it. And, and you know, I, I feel that, that RKO was walking the line a little bit. And I think Luton probably realized, oh my God, they're going to want a monster film for me. So I think he probably erred in that direction uh, toward the end to give them some taste of uh, what they were expecting, but yet keep it an artistic, you know, piece of work too. But I don't know that it would have. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. I sort of like the fact that they did it the way they did, and in my own view, you know, I could see it as actually being trans uh, transformation from human to this cat. Um, I enjoyed that, but also I, I think you can enjoy it the other way if you want to. Uh, so maybe both of them are there, and maybe had he done the other, it might have actually made it more definitively in her head. Where in this, we both can look at and see different things. I agree. I agree. I uh, you know, and you had mentioned um, Simone Simone earlier, and yeah. It reminds me, I wanted to ask, when I was watching this movie, again, I hadn't seen it in quite some time, and then uh, I sort of had it in my mind who the uh, the hero was and the villain, as it were. At least, you know, there isn't really a villain so much as a threat. But, you know, when we begin the film, we're introduced to uh, her character, Arena, uh, Arena Dubrovna, I think. Mm-hmm. And she's the first person we see 
but yet right. we're quickly enough introduced to Oliver, you know, during their initial meet cute. And I maybe this is a silly question. Maybe it's a pointless question, but who do you think is the film's lead character? Who's our hero? You know, is it is it Arena who begins the tale and you know, she drives the story and it's she that we kind of sympathize I, with? I don't know. I never you know, I I never even thought about who's the hero or, or anything like that. I just thought I'm I'm captivated. But so I, my honest be- belief is in this case, in this film, that the greatest protagonist is the film itself. It's the way it looks and the way it makes you feel and the way that it's almost dreamlike. And, and I think there are novels like that where the characterization in the novels is sometimes sketchy, but it's the novel that's the character. And that's not always the truth. But if you take something like some of um, Kurt Vonnegut's novels, like Breakfast of Champions, I mean, I, I don't think there's any strong characters in there at all. They're all, uh, you know, I got caricatures more than their characters. And I think it's entirely intentional. I think he, he sort of dis, is disregards the whole idea of what you think of as character, what you think of as plot. And But to me, when you get through with it, you know you've had this unique experience of reading something that's not quite like anything else, and then you realize that it is not a characterless uh, book. It's the book itself, and the way it's written and the way it's approached is the character. And perhaps in a less, um, I, I guess, uh, fireworks kind of way, uh, that's the cat people. It, it's, it's a more somber character, but the character is the film. And uh, the other, you know, that doesn't mean the other uh, people, that the people in it are not important components. But the greatest character is the film itself. It's like a living, breathing thing. And that's why it, it lasts. When you get through, there's an echo beyond the viewing. And to me, that's when you know that you've gotten a film that has style and that the style is the character. It's the same way with books. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't have traditional views about books. I don't think all books have to have a, a three-act system. I don't believe that's true of all films either. I don't believe that all books have to have someone that you, that's uh, likable. Uh, you know, you have to have somebody you're interested in, but not necessarily likable. And I don't believe every book has to have a true villain. You know, I, I think uh, a story is a story is a story, and they're different in their nature. Some are driven entirely by the characters, and most writers will tell you that you know that's the important component. Any serious writer, uh, and some writers maybe would tell you that it's the plot that's got to keep you driving forward. And everybody would be right from their own perspective of what they're trying to create. But the more unique film and book is uh, is where they themselves become the major character they are the character and i think it's a rare book i tried to do it with a book of mine called the drive-in it has people in it i think it has you know some characterizations in it but what i was trying to do was work hard to make the book and its nature its structure its feeling and when you it's not not plot structure but more this although there's you know there's certainly some of that but this this structure of story where you begin to and maybe you don't realize it, but when you get to the end, you feel that you've had some unique experience. And what that experience is, if I did it right, uh, is that you spent some time with a really interesting character, but that interesting character was the book itself. I suppose I was hung up on it in a way just because I love the fact that Arena, you know, there is a section of the film where we might consider her the hero. There is a section of the film where we might consider her the villain, you know, and although well, it she's, seems a, like... she's the doomed hero, you know, if you, if you want, if you want to, if you feel driven to have 
somebody, one of the actors, be the hero. I think it is her. I think she's. I think she's a doom hero, just the same uh, as uh, the Wolfman. You know, when Lon Chaney Jr. turns into the Wolfman, he's just this other guy that that's uh, been altered, or or, or that they have this transformation is dug down deep into the primal aspects of human beings, and that's all he is in that moment. Uh, but uh, you you know he he is the hero and the villain, and I think she's both the hero and the villain of the piece. If you have to label one of the characters as a hero or a villain, and uh, there are some films like that, you know, you like that character or you don't. But not every film is really a character. When it's at its best, the the content within it, the characters, the people are characters, and the film itself becomes a character. I think a a, a great example of that would be Taxi Driver. You know, uh, I mentioned that before. I think that a great example of that would be Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, because they're all doing something that at least at that point in time had never been done before. Not in that way, not to that degree, and not with that kind of um, cinematic style. And so both of those actually have, first of all, a screenplay, a plot that's a character, because it's so strong, so clever, so important, especially the Goldman piece, you know, the Butch Cassidy. Then you have the stars in it. You have Robert De Niro, and, and well, everybody in that film, in fact, is a true character. But the, when you get through, that film itself has a resonance that you can't quite explain. It, it's sort of like a fever dream. It's a realistic fever dream where cat, well, cat people is more of a uh, unrealistic fever dream. It's it's it may even be more of a sort of mild disconcerting nightmare because it's it's horrors are you know they're not blatant. But I think I think this whole idea about what film and what books are and how they're successful is far more complicated than the, the idea of three act structures and uh, you know a strong lead and a, a protagonist and an antagonist. I'm not saying those are not important elements or that I have not adhered to them at times, but I don't think about them when I write. I always try to feel the story more than I try to analyze the story. It has to have a certain logic if I'm writing a crime story. Uh, when I was writing The Drive-In, it didn't have to have a certain logic. It had elements of, of quickie B films, but it also had this element of nightmare. So I think that that's what makes the cat people memorable to me and it's kind of why I, I i like it better than the you know the curse of the cat people which i also love is because i think it works a little harder at its at its logic although it's certainly still you know a lot of it's suggested but the cat people it's a simple story that makes it gives it a logical crutch to stand on but what makes it really really work is that that crutch is welded to the style and the shadow and and everything, and I, I just think that that's so much to do with all of Val Luton's films and their uniqueness of them. Even out of the past, which you know, the crime film that uh, it is kind of the same sort of thing. Uh, it has a it has a, a dreamy quality. It's sort of like realism is trying to push through the dream, or maybe the dream is trying to push through the realism. It's a, it's a unique feeling and i think it's that way really when you go all the way back like to the cat people is it reality and a dream's pushing through it or is this a dream and reality's trying to push through it and and that that has that feeling of something uh 
you know, that's outside our realm of understanding and knowledge. And it's not only outside our understanding of, uh, and realm of knowledge and say a story like, you know, the Lovecraftian thing behind the curtain. It's in film itself. The film itself has somehow absorbed the personalities of the creators. And uh, I don't mean that in any mystical way, but I, mean, I believe that a certain passion or perhaps just pure skill has gone into these particular films like that and like The Haunting, and uh, they, they somehow resonate because of that. That's why the, the remake of The Haunting was just so god-awful, because it was a terrible script, it was terrible uh, uh, storyline, that had some good actors in it, but they were not at their best, and it was just all over the place. It has no soul. And this one, and the cat people has soul. And there's even there's even a great line in the film. I don't remember the exact line, but it's where the psychiatrist is talking to uh, the, the 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 cat woman, and uh, he he says to her uh, something about the soul, and she said, "No, when you talk about the soul, you mean the mind." And of course, that's a, what psychiatry is really after. And and uh, that's what the film. When you see a film. It's almost that there's something unnatural about a really good film like that. You don't know, you don't understand why all these things have come together to work for you, and it seems soulful. But what it really is, it's, it's your mind. You you have certain things that work for you and certain things that don't. And some films, for a lot of people, they touch on a lot of you know human emotions that are not entirely describable. And I, I may be making more of this film than some people are going to want it to be made of. But for me, that's why things, things like this are so memorable and why they're so important to me personally, is that I, I just, I come away with this feeling like I have seen something unique. I've been somewhere unique. I have had an experience that, again, is unique. And uh, that, that matters to me, you know, and that's what makes the difference for these films, and again, it goes back to personality, you know, when somebody else is going to pick a different horror film because it speaks to their, quote, soul, unquote, or that whatever is in their mind that they have, uh, you know, attached themselves through to their life. And then if that film hits on enough of those buttons, uh, it becomes special beyond sometimes even its quality, which we, we kind of discussed earlier. But in this one, I think you've got everything. I think you've got quality. You've got the film as a character, and you have a simple mythological tale that's easy to understand immediately. And then it has this undercurrent of sexual tension and jealousy uh, that, that everybody experiences at least some time in their life, if not forever. So that's, that's part of what makes it so unique, because it didn't try to get too damn clever like the remake did. <laughs> so can I I think that's fascinating I agree with you entirely I, I don't think I'd ever considered that about the movie but I yeah I but at the same time like we you know we were discussing Luton's sort of pre-directing of the film and then Jacques Tourneur's own contributions to it and the fact that you know both men obviously had a, a great hand in the film's success as a piece but you know if if Cat People does have a soul who does it belong to more do you think Luton or Tourneur it belongs to the viewer, and you know it's because whatever soul has been constructed, you don't know that it's one person, and I doubt that it is. I think it's probably a him and Tourneau a, a lot, but I also think that when you get through with it, it belongs to the viewer. You know, I don't think it belongs to them anymore. They gave it up, and um, 
that's what a good film does is they give it all and then they give it to you and then we get to keep it. I love that. That reminds me of, uh, I think something Clive Barker said once about Hellraiser. Uh, the fact that, you know, after, uh, so many sequels and comics and, uh, you know, just so many years and, you know, how, how the fandom had built up or whatnot, that the movie was no longer his. It had long since become, uh, the property of the fans. And I, I think you're right. I think that's probably true of every movie. Once we, uh, once we view it. Yeah. And there are also movies that get their souls stepped on. You know, there, there's movies like Jaws. The original Jaws is one of the scariest and best suspense or horror movies, however you want to, to action adventure movie, however you want to label it. But there have been so many sequels that unless you go back once in a while and get away from all of that stuff and watch that original, you then realize, oh, my God, what a film this was. But there, there are certain things about it that you'll never have that same experience because it was for a first-time experience and something that was on screen that we had not seen before and done in a way we had not seen before. But all of the sequels, and I'm one of those people that thinks all the sequels suck. I'm that way about <laughs> Rocky. The first movie about Rocky is this fantastic film about a, a hard luck guy who just, as he says, doesn't want to be another bum in the neighborhood. And that movie is uh, one of the greatest boxing films ever made, and it's also a great and simple drama. And it's, again, its key is that it has a simple storyline, you know, uh, Poor boy wants to do better. Poor boy gets a shot at doing better. Poor boy meets a girl. Poor boy gets the girl. He doesn't exactly do what he would like to have done with the shot at, the, at its best, but he really did what he was most concerned with. He showed himself he was just not another bum in the neighborhood. And then everything after that, they gear it up. It's like when they remake a movie, they think, okay, we've got to have more explosions. We've got to jack it up. We've got to make it you know, bigger, brighter. And they actually suck the air out of a lot of films uh, because by remaking them, they have ruined the film. And they feel obligated to change the plot line because, oh, well, that's, that film's been made. But the truth of the matter is is that they end up ruining it that way or just making a, a, a Know, contrived disappointment and that's what happens with most of those is they're contrived disappointments the films the original films i, I always said this about books and films both is that i would rather view an interesting failure than uh, a bland success I agree. because there's plenty of bland successes and sometimes films that fail like like for me you know we, we were talking about hereditary i i don't like the ending of that film but i thought that it's it was a very brave and interesting film, and I thought the acting was good. I thought everything was in it was good. And I think that sometimes there, there was a writer, a friend of mine, uh, uh, we weren't close friends, but we were friends, and I admired him a lot. He's Philip Jose Farmer, and he said, sometimes you have to go out on a limb and saw it off with you sitting on the wrong end. And I've never <laughs> forgot that, because that, that's exactly that's true. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you do. I love that. I so do you think that I I you mentioned that you didn't care for the movie, but you know when it comes to the remake of Cat People, um, do you think it was merely uh, the era in which it was made? Do you think it was the man who made it? You know Paul Schrader. Um, do you think it was the expectations that they felt that the audiences might have had that they felt the need to take some of the themes that uh, Luton and Turner dealt with in the original movie and did so in a very subtle way to make it more explicit? Um, I, I, I can't tell you what 
what the director was thinking. But I do think it was of its era because the part of it was that all and you know I I've loved some blood and guts films. You know I I don't have a I don't draw a line between that. For me, it just has to work. Uh, but for me, the film didn't work because everything that made the other film work was missing, and they didn't come up with anything new that made it work differently well. It just I thought I thought it was a, a, a poor representation of the idea. And and for me, I think that was the script, but I also think it was the era because everybody had to have everything explored and sexuality had to be, you know, we're in the other one. What made it sort of unsettling was that it was all kind of unglimpsed. But you knew that this guy at home, he wasn't getting any. (laughs) And he was he was he was stressed out about it, you know, and uh, and that was part of it was that stress on his part. But yet it was a stress on her part because she feared what she might become. And in the other one, you know, the, the whole mythology, if I remember right, I only saw it once and I've never seen it again because I hated it that much, was that the whole mythology in that one, if I remember right, was much more detailed and uh, much more worked out. And what I liked was the fact that we only had this sort of generalization of that. And I think Schrader you know, is great. When he's great, he's great. I just don't think he was great then. And I felt that it was all about, uh, you know, it was about ex- explosion and uh, or, or, well, blood, tits, and ass. And that's that's what I think that they went for. And I just didn't feel that that it worked very well as a, as a film. And so everybody's got their you know their favorites, and it, and sometimes it has something to do with the first one you've seen, but not always, you know, not always. And in my case, I don't think I'd like have liked the film if I had never seen the original. I just didn't think it was a very good film. But that's my own personal. I usually try not to criticize anybody that's alive or whatever, but a film like that has gone enough into the uh, uh, it's enough in the past and and it's enough of a uh, uh, general film that people people comment on all the time. I don't feel so bad saying that because I'm certainly not criticizing the creators because I've really screwed up some of my own creations sometimes and totally unintentionally. You're doing the best you can with novels, short stories, films, and you don't always hit it out of the park. But that's maybe that's because, like, sometimes you go out and saw off the limb with you sitting on the wrong end, and sometimes you land in clover, and sometimes you just land on your ass on rock. <laughs> Can I, 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 I really want to ask you about that, if that's okay. When, yeah, for you as a creator, when does that moment of realization hit that you you might have been on the wrong end of the uh, the branch, as it were? Does it come like well, initially I, I realize, or does it come with reviews? Does it come with years later? And No, reviews are, are, are almost, almost pointless and worthless in many ways. It's not to mean that I don't like a good one, but I'll, I'll come back to that. What I, I, I guess not reviews. I don't mean I'm, reviews so much as like critiques so much as like, uh, I guess, well, widespread reception, you know, that might come from fans even. Well, yeah, yeah that, 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 you know, if you're, if you're sitting on the limb and you're sawing it off and you fall, uh, sometimes you've hit so hard on the rock, you're so stunned, you don't know how hard and bad you failed. <laughs> and sometimes you land in clo- clover and there's quicksand under it because it seems good at the time. I would never let anything leave my typewriter. Well, now it's a word processor, but I would never let anything leave me that I thought was bad ever. But sometimes you you miss uh, you miss a step and you don't know it, or sometimes you're taking a step and you think it's wonderful. And I've also had just the opposite numerous times where I thought I'd, when after it was done, I thought, "Oh my God!" Thinking back on that, I missed the boat so bad. Turned out I didn't miss it at all, 
And there's been some where I thought I had really knocked it out of the park, but over time I looked at it and there was a level, I, there's a level I don't fall below after so many years of experience. And so I don't think that they're disasters. They're just not as good as I would have liked them to be. And in one sense, none of them are. You always, at least I would, I always would like another crack at every one of them. But I know that's a bad idea because you actually can bleed the very original essence out of it that had to do with the time in which it was written. But sometimes you miss, oh, you know, you saw that limb off and it's that hard, rocky ground, but you don't know it until sometime later when you're looking back over it and go, oh, well, I could have done that better. I could have done this. And and I have to say, I don't have a, a, a big pile of stories I feel that way about, or I wouldn't, you know, have let them in, into the wild. But a few, every once in a while, you know, one gets out of the cage before you know it. And then later on, when you see it prowling around, you realize how mangy it is. But, you know, that that's one of those things that, that, that you just don't know. But But reviews about coming back to criticism, there are sometimes, though, if you write something, people keep responding really well to it. You'll go back and look at it and realize, or at least perhaps you realize in a, in a, uh, a sort of protective way that it was better than you thought it was. I, I, and give you an example. There's a, a story I wrote, Bubba Hotep. And uh, oh, yes. when I first wrote that story and I turned it in, I thought about that story. I said, oh, my God, I missed the boat. And that's the worst damn story I ever wrote. Really? And I was writing, and this this is true. I was writing a letter to withdraw it. The mail came that day. This is our favorite story. I think it's Paul Salmon. So I like this story a lot, or words to that effect. And I thought, huh. <laughs> and so then it was published, and I reread it, and I thought, oh, wow, I think I did knock this out of the park. And it was because it was written in this weird, uh, white-hot fever, because I don't plot things. They, they, they sort of – I capture whatever emotions I can with, like, a little butterfly net, and uh, I sort of – you know, I don't, I don't even mount them on the board. I don't want them dead. I let them fly around, and I let them mate. And then sometimes it comes out really good, and sometimes, uh, you know, not so much. And I felt that way about that story, and I've had that about several others. I've also had stories which I thought were my good professional story. I was not ashamed of, didn't think a whole lot of it, but readers loved it, and they just keep, you know, coming back to that story. And I kind of go, huh, you know. And then you'll have stories that are very, very popular through a certain period in your career, and then they just sort of fall off the charts. And then you have others that aren't particularly well received early on, or received at all. Then all of a sudden. Everybody's on them, man. Like like white on rice. It's just it's one of those things, you know. You just don't you don't know how to explain those things. You're, 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 at least I don't. I mean, I, I'm I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not a big planner. I sort of just do what interests me. And I might try to write uh, a story that's very literary one day, and then the next day I might be trying to push those genre buttons just as hard as I can because I don't feel that I, that I'm owned by those things because I, I write like everybody I know is dead, which I think I've said before, because I write for me. And then when I get through, I hope somebody loves it. But when I'm doing it, I can't write for other people. I don't care. I'm not looking for how it affects my career. I'm looking for how it affects me at that moment. And then when I get through, I hope like hell it affects my career positively, of course. I hope people like it, of course. But those can't be considerations when you're when you create. And that's the thaw in the limb part. <laughs> Now, can I, it's, you know, discussing that, you know, just a moment ago, we had talked about the remake of Cat People and the fact that it was a movie very much of its era right. uh, in regards to, you know, the sex right. and violence. And have you ever, you know, obviously that's something that Val Luton and Jacques Tourneur 
weren't able to indulge in, even if they had wanted to. But have you ever found yourself as a writer right. with those same sorts of restrictions that they must have dealt with? I never wrote with restrictions in mind. Sometimes when I wrote, there were restrictions on their end, and they didn't buy the story. Uh, but I always wrote the story straight out, and I was and I'm able to sell them all. You know, there's there's maybe one or two stories that I think I may have pushed it a little too far. But at the moment in time, I wasn't trying to just push it to push it. But the story was there, and I was in that particular frame of mind. And I think too that at different ages, at, when you're writing, when you're in your twenties, you're writing, your thirties, you're writing, your forties, you're writing. They're, they're, every era brings you a new way of looking at things, and it doesn't mean necessarily that the old way is bad or the new way is better or vice versa. It just means that experience gives you new um, evidence. And you take what evidence you now have and apply it to your work. And you don't know that you're doing it that way, but you are. And I think I'm a far better writer now than I was early on. But there are certainly people that will argue with you that, oh, those early stories were my favorite. Well, they read them first, and you know what? They may, they may be the best. I don't think so. I think, they, I think that I have written good stories at every stage of my career, but that, that each one of them has – they've had different sorts of uh, – blooms if if uh, if if the same roots the roots are the same but the flowers they produce are not always the same i what do you this is pure speculation of course on our part but it's maybe a sort of fun way to start wrapping up you know looking at luton and turner's work they're they're so great and so masterful really i mean my god some of the sequences wow. in the final half of cat people are just uh, stunning uh, I'm thinking of the pull sequence oh and the, yeah. the, the tracking it's sequence. Wonderful. And wonderful. It's incredible. I, I just wonder, though, do you think if the censors hadn't been an issue in the 40s, do you feel as though Luton and Turner might have made less suggestive films? And if so, what do you think those might have looked like? No, I think I think they wouldn't have made I don't know. I don't think so. And the reason I, I think that is that the fact that he didn't make them like the Universal Monster films he already had the idea to be subtle because that's what they wanted you know they were wanting their own wolf so they had the cat people well he you know the 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 person next stage roger corman would have been doing that and another one of my favorites by the way i love roger corman for a lot of different reasons but if roger corman had been making that you'd have damn sure saw some cat people you know <laughs> uh and the universal at the, and universal had they had, had somebody handed them that cat people thing you would have also seen cat people, at least in the vein of, the, of that era, like the Wolfman. There would have been people running around with cat faces and, and what have you. And that doesn't mean it would have been bad, but it would have been different. So I certainly think they always intended to be subtle. But I do think that the era sometimes affected the way they perceived things because there were unconscious and conscious restrictions. You know, you might not... Uh, you're not going to be, de- be dealing with nudity, so you might have scenes that suggest it. You may not be able to show sex, but you can show those curtains blowing in the wind, you know. And uh, all of that kind of sometimes made the movies better, you know, for those particular kinds of movies. I'm not someone who, you know, thinks you have to do a movie one kind of way, but I've always thought strangely about nudity in films that there's a difference in nudity in books and nudity in films because there's an actual person portraying that person, and they're actually nude. And 20 years from now, they're going to be older, and their kids are going to be seeing their grandkids, and, and there's no telling how many you know uh, boys or girls, depending on who's nude, have uh, had their you know little sexual experiences 
<laughs> off of those people. And so they're real people that are affected by that. So I've always thought that when people say, yeah, we can have nudity and that'll be great. I always think, you know, that sounds like a little 12 year old boy <laughs> wanting, wanting nudity. It doesn't say, you know, there's some films where, where it can add to it. And certainly it's up to the actors to make that decision, male, female, whatever. But I think sometimes that's just put in for the reason that it is what it is. And that's the way I felt about the, the remake of the cat people, that it was just there to be there because they could do it. And, um, but you know, it, it can actually an effect, affect people, um, in reality because it's, it's in real time. And as they get older, that's there forever. You know, that film's always there with somebody holding their penis in their hand or something, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so they have to really be willing to make that choice. And I'm not opposed to making that choice. And I've certainly seen great films with nudity, and like most twelve-year-old uh, boys that are sixty-seven, which is me, <laughs> I, I don't mind seeing it, you know. But I always do think that. And if I were to make a film, I probably would never have that for that simple reason, because I don't think I'd want to ask a living human being to do that for the simple reason that, that they might have to deal with it. You know, if they said I, I can't do a film unless I get naked, then that might be a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but it's kind of a general consideration that I have because I often find that I think it's, it's, it's just people think, oh, my God, we get to have nudity. And I, I and I don't you know, there's that old funny thing. I only do nudity if the role calls for it. But any role calls for it, if it's in the script, you're willing to do it. All right, sir. I think that's just about our time. Mr. Lansdale, thank you so much for coming back on the show and for choosing such a great movie to talk about. And before we go, can I ask you, uh, yeah. do you have any final parting thoughts on Cat People? I, I think it's a movie that stands, and I, I think it's a movie that a lot of people probably miss, a lot of modern, uh, younger viewers, because it's in black and white. And, and i got to tell you, the, there are great glories in black and white. I love color films too, but the shadows and that the, the way things are, uh, the way things look and the way they're presented and the kind of subtext that those camera, if the camera work and the lighting gives it, it's well worth somebody taking time to see it. And it's a fine film. All right. Can I ask, uh, what can fans keep an eye out for from you in the future and where can they find you at online? Well, uh, you can find me at, uh, uh, Joe, uh, Joe R. Lansdale uh, at um, uh, on my website. That's the regular thing, just Joe R. Lansdale. And then I got a fan page, which is my name again. And I'm on Twitter, you know. And you can watch for Tara is our business, a uh, short story collection my daughter and I did. That's in the uh, it's in the old vein of uh, supernatural detectives. And uh, that's right now we're on book tour. Or I will be again tomorrow. We've just been doing sold out the first printing. The second printing's coming. Or you can go check out the Happen Leonard Jack Rabbit Smile, which came out in March. Very cool. Uh, can I take just two seconds to say that uh, Happen Leonard was one of the best damn television shows. Uh, not only on television when it was running, but I, I think period. It was one of my favorite shows ever. And the fact that we Thank you. only got three seasons, I think, is an absolute crime. I, I wanted to see Bad Chili. I wanted to see the follow-up novels. I wanted to see <laughs> I wanted to see Don Johnson come back as Jim Bob, encoring from Cold in July. Yeah. I, uh, 
And is there any chance well, you you know, there might be a resurrection in the future? Um, right now, it doesn't look good. You know, there, there may be a new version of it sometime in the future. But, uh, you know, I think that James and Michael, we will have lost them. You know, James said something that he and I agreed on. We, we were trading emails on it, and he, we didn't feel sad. We felt fortunate that we had those three wonderful seasons because the, it was a kind of show that was lucky to be made. And... Um, you know, I, it wasn't perfect, but it was damn good, and it was unique. And I think it's, I, you know, I, and taking me out of the the mix, I think it's one of the better TV shows that's been on. I, I honestly think it feels to me like one of those shows that at some point people are going to discover and talk about, and I think it's going to grow yeah. more and more. And then at a certain point, people are going to realize you know, what, what sort of boat was missed there. And, uh, you know, I, I yeah. can only keep my fingers crossed that we'll uh, – We'll see their adventures on screen again sometime. Again, right, hopefully soon. Right, <laughs> right. Me too. Me too. Thank you. All right, sir. Well, thank you again. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, tell your friends about us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Screamatics, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much and have a great weekend. Just walked over my grave.